Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to M.A. Warden, who is a philosophy lecturer, aspiring writer, and artist. Mark has their own YouTube channel called Indecent, where they discuss issues around philosophy, politics, gender and queer studies, and whatever else tickles their fancy. They spend most of their time engaged in some or other creative endeavor, some of which we'll get to talk about today. Mark's piece in Living While Feminist is called Living the Queer Question and explores the themes of gender identity and performance, the difficulty in coming out, toxic masculinity and institutionalized trauma. It also raises the importance of asking questions. In their piece, Mark says, the solution, though not itself an answer, comes from Rilke. Live the questions. I must inhabit the life world of my gender identity until I disclose my authentic self to myself, free from intellectual constraints and revolutionary compulsions. I must discover or perhaps even define what it means for me to be queer and whether I am gay, bi, ambi, pan, demi, trans, nos, fluid or non-binary, there's one thing I know for certain, I am me. So thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the podcast. I'm very excited to have you here and to talk to you today. And thank you for inviting me to be on the show. Pleasure. Let's begin with your piece in Living While Feminist, which begins with you at high school and the extreme pressures your school put on you to play rugby. Can you tell me a bit more about what that moment revealed to you about how institutions and the language that they use can include and exclude and can play a role in gender policing? really sat for, with me for a long time. Um, I mean, I always thought it strange. I um, never really enjoyed rugby. I actually wanted to play hockey initially, um, but apparently that was considered too feminine of a sport, which I always thought was strange for anyone who's played hockey. It can be quite brutal. Um, but there was always this idea that to be a man, to be, a, to be masculine, you had to play rugby. Um, and it was almost sort of like a, a rite of initiation that, at least in grade eight, they felt that it should be compulsory for, for all students to play rugby. And um, when the, the, the headmaster called us, called me a cream puff, it, it was really damaging because I was only about 12 or 13 at the time. And, you know, you're going into puberty and it was a new school environment for me and you're trying so desperately to fit in. And for, for them to say, you either do this or you are not part of the group, mm. was, it was intimidating. It was, it was threatening. So you, I, I felt that I almost had to, to concede and, and participate. And... I mean, I tried. I tried to resist. They had numerous meetings where they called the students in. And, you know, it, it started with the whole, as I said in the piece, it starts with the whole grade. And they sort of broke us up into small groups. And eventually, the headmaster called us in one by one, sort of at random. And then eventually, um, 
I, I went to rugby practice very reluctantly. And, um, yeah, and then she'd be greeted with this greeting where they're like, welcome to the world of men. Welcome, I'm glad you could join us men. It was, all right, okay, now I'm here, now what? And um, I, I hated that, 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 that suffering almost of, you know, it's almost like physical torture. I'm very, even now, I'm very skeptical about sports and stuff at school because there's so much aggression behind it. Um, but that's what it takes, apparently, mm. uh, to be a man. <laughs> and I never, I never got past that. Throughout my entire high school career, I, I carried on playing rugby because that's what you had to do. Mm. Um, you know, even in matric, it was sort of like the unspoken rule that if you wanted to be a prefect or if you wanted to get sort of any advancement, you had to be a rugby player. Um, or a cricket player at the very least. <laughs> That's a different story. Yeah. But I mean, it came across so clearly in your piece and as you're talking now, how um, systems of power sort of tied together. So this accurate or this sense that you had to be a particular type of person to fit in yes. and then that, that you would get rewarded the more that you squashed down any different parts of yourself and conformed. Mm. Um, and I think that's it's really powerful in terms of the way that you think about gender as a performance and the fact that when you call into question other people's, when you through your own actions say this is a performance that I don't want to be a part of, this is a type of masculinity that doesn't suit me, you point out to others that gender is a social construct and that tends to make them very uncomfortable. Do you think that that had yes. something to do with why everybody reacted so resistantly to you being your authentic self you know it's only been really in the last few years since my my partner decided because he's transgender um and i mean that's something he's been grappling with his whole life and something we've known for for years i've, I've been with him for a very long time now um, but it's only since he sort of came out publicly as trans and pursued his affirmation that i was really confronted with my own gender identity um and as well as my own neurodivergence, um, that was another aspect of myself that I had not realized um, until very recently. And looking back at, at my childhood and my teenage years, I realized how much of, um, you know, I was at odds with, with society at, at large, um, with my parents, with teachers, with my peers, because of those two factors. Um, and I'd always been accused of, you know, being very effeminate, being very, you know, I've been accused of being gay long before I realized those parts of myself. Um, and the fact that, you know, I had these things that I w wanted to be, I, I've always been very artistically inclined, um, but I've also always been very clever <laughs> uh, academically. Mm. So there was always sort of this um, drive to, to, um, perform academically at school to get straight A's and you know even that wasn't enough um, to prove my worth um, I had to do these other things that that made me man like play rugby or you know I had to dress a certain way now obviously we had a, a, um, a dress code at school we had to wear school uniforms but um, you know even beyond that um, 
with my peers and stuff, there was always this expectation of how you would behave. Um, and it was really stifling. And it, I'm, I'm amazed <laughs> that it took me so long to realize the truth of things. Um, but that's how desperate mm. I was to, to fit in. And I took it for granted. I thought this, this is what everyone was experiencing. Um, you know, everyone was um, suffering the same as me. Everyone was, was keeping quiet about what they wanted to, to be, who they wanted to be, because you had to be this particular kind of, of person. Um, you know, you had to be the first team rugby player who got decent grades and maybe did debating extra or something like that. Um, there was this whole persona you had to adopt. And um, if you didn't fit the mold, you, you were very much marginalized. You know, I battled with, with relationships. I battled with, with friendships. Um, I mean, I was bullied, and I didn't even realize that I was being bullied. I just thought that's how people interact with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually, I adopted this persona um, that centered around my academic work. Um, and that carried on long after uh, high school even. You know, it's these shifting goalposts. Mm. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what you achieve. Mm. Someone's, someone somewhere is always going to have a different idea about what it takes to be a man. And the more you try to uh, appease that, the more you lose yourself. And and I speak in the piece of this process, sort of tongue in cheek. I talk about desisification mm. uh, to refer to this self interrogation of sort of peeling back all the layers to see, you know, what is, what is, what is really me and what is just all the nonsense that has accumulated from years and years of trying to force myself to fit in. So much about institutions or systems of power try to create an idea of the normal as like this thing you should mm. aspire to. And I don't think there's very many of us in, in whoever we are that feel like we fit the ideal and you know it's very tied to all sorts of things it's tied to um school it's tied to capitalism it's tied to all of these things that try to reproduce a feeling of unsettledness the pressure of having to fit in so to be invisible and also to stand out as this ideal creates a, a huge amount of uh, shame and trauma and stress and I wonder how, you know, since you've come to the, or began this process of desisification, how you've begun to tackle this double bind of fitting in and standing out and whether you're feeling like there's some tools that you've developed that's helping you to navigate a bit more easily. I don't think I would call it a double bind anymore. Mm. Um, it certainly felt that way for a while. I guess the double bind comes into the fact that Unfortunately, we do have to perform um, from a purely survival point of view. It is not safe to, in certain spaces to, um, to be ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, and we have to moderate ourselves um, lest we suffer the consequences. I mean, when, um, when my um, partner came out as trans, he was forced to resign from his job. Um, because the the, um, the backlash was so so overwhelming, but also so so sinister in its presentation, there was nothing really um, tangible that you could you know take and say say go to the equality board or whatever mm -hmm. and say look these people have done this. 
Um, and that, is, that has been, for me, the most difficult experience to deal with is the constant, you know, the microaggressions, the gaslighting, the lampshading. In terms of dealing with that, I've, I've sort of recognized a few things in, in my process. Firstly, um, you know, you have to, and I, I don't want to call out people, but I, I, I see this with a lot of other, you know, gender diverse people too, is that they, um, even in their own acknowledgement of their gender identity, they, they still don't really interrogate much of what has gone into, into that. Um, you know, they, they perform their queerness as much as they perform their, their straightness. Um, and I would say, you know, if, if, if you are grappling with your, your gender identity or your sexual orientation or whatever it may be, that you have to be willing to, to go to some really dark places because you'll be surprised to find how, how deep, you know, the teeth of, of cis-heteronormativity or even things like white supremacism which is something you know I had to confront with because um, I, I was raised in a very white supremacist sort of household, um, availed white supremacism, I should say, which made it very difficult to, to interrogate. But you have to take the risk of, of saying, you know, I, was, I did some bad things. Mm. I was involved in some bad stuff. And be able to forgive yourself for that because... Oftentimes you didn't have a choice. Um, it was that, or or to suffer something worse, um, mm -hmm. which is what I talk about in my piece when I mention the, the institutionalized trauma. Is that part of the trauma is not just what gets done onto you, but what you get forced to do onto others, mm -hmm. because that that is also a way of binding you through through a sense of shared guilt with with the the power the the dominant um, group. Um, but if you can if you can sustain that that level of self interrogation and and try to find out who you really are, and that is why I say you have to live the question. There are no, you know, there are no formulas or any sort of guiding principles that you can follow to, you know, a checklist to say, okay, I've done X, Y, Z, and now I know this is who I am. You really have to take the risk of you know dress this way and see how you feel. Mm -hmm. Uh, act this way, um, you know. Go on a date with this person and see if you like it. Though, you know, be safe in that regard as mm. well. Um, because once you have a sense of who you are, it becomes a lot easier to um, to confront the the little aggressions every day. Um, I mean, these are things that I had to to go through. I really struggled um, when, for example, when my partner came out to me as as trans. And I was a bit slow on the uptake. It took me a while to say, like, hold on, if if he's a trans guy and I'm a guy, does that mean I'm gay? Because <laughs> it didn't feel like that. You know, yeah. to me it just felt like this is the person I love and whatever you want to call it, straight, gay, or anything else, didn't seem to matter, but it matters a hell of a lot to other people. Mm -hmm. And they're going to have their questions and eventually you're going to have to confront those questions even if it's only for your own peace of mind i think it's so interesting because i've, I've come to this idea um in reading another book called untamed by glennon doyle american writer 
Um, and in the book, they refer to patriarchy as a type of pollution. So even when you're aware of the harmful effects that it has, you've breathed it in there, stuff that exists in you that like you can't eradicate. So, um, and I think it's so interesting that you raise these ideas of sort of complicity and guilt and this group performance as the glue that holds that whole system together. Yeah. Because if we've all participated wow. in a reinforcement in some way, then unless we're willing to accept our guilt, which takes, which is painful, yeah. we can't move forward. So it's easier just pretend we weren't part of that and you know carry on as if these gender constructs were real in the first place. I like that word pollution. Mm. I think that's a great way of, of, of describing that um, because I think people don't always realize, I mean, I didn't realize this, that's why I bring it up. It, it, it was a very painful lesson for me um, because apart from you know more of the obvious things about let's take masculinity as an example um you know apart from the obvious things about like the way you dress and you know, the kind of food you eat and you drink beer not not apple teenies or whatever um there's this very obvious thing but there are also much more subtle things that get incultured into us about what it takes to be a man and one of the things that we often take for granted is how we are taught to deal with relationships um you know, there's a certain way you get taught about, I mean, this was a, a big thing for me in high school and, and in university with, with my male friends is that for, there was always this idea that um, in a relationship, the relationship was almost like a zero-sum game. Um, there had to be the one that was in charge and the one that was submissive and you weren't allowed to love more than the other. If you loved the, I mean, obviously, we were talking for us. It was uh, a heterosexual relationship, mm. so it's like you had to. The girl had to love you more than you loved her. Otherwise, you lost. Mm. That was the idea, you know. And that comes with this whole associated set of um, practices and beliefs about how you negotiate a relationship that becomes so settled in you that even with with my partner and 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 still now. Um, you find these little bits of, of the way you, you know, for example, handle an argument or deal with, you know, maybe your partner's having an off day and then suddenly your mind runs wild about all the, the, the nefarious things they're doing behind the scenes mm. and why they're being a bit off. You know, you immediately yeah. jump to these really terrible conclusions because that's what you've been taught. If your partner's being distant, it means they're cheating on you or something. Mm. Um, and even if cognitively, you recognize these as being um, stupid <laughs> ideas that you might have emotionally because those things are so deep-seated in you. It's this pollution mm. that has settled itself in you. And it, even long after you might have recognized your, your, your identity or your orientation, uh, the way you behave, because it has all that baggage, um, can, can be very... Um, toxic you know it's part part of clearing that pollution to look at you know the little jealousies the little bits of anger the little bits of sadness um and even the things that that seem positive i mean you might be feeling very happy about things that you should not be feeling happy about that is that is what has been put onto you and i'm sure women can can attest to very much of the same things i mean my partner often tells me about the way he was raised as a presumed woman about how he should deal with relationships you know to uh, always be forgiving no matter the transgression, to close your eyes and, and pretend you didn't see. Um, 
and and to always submit, always be there to serve, mm. um, which is something he has had to, to to come to grips with. And we've had to, thankfully, we're both um, in this together, so we're both very forgiving and encouraging of each other. Um, but you really have to be willing to to confront that that pollution and, mm. and to try and clear it out. You've spoken a little bit about, you know, the actual emotional strain and the mental health. Um, and I know that th- there are a lot of studies that say many South Africans are struggling with their mental health and that queer South Africans in particular um, face difficulties because of things like family exclusion and navigating this. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how you became more able to process some of those difficult emotions and what sort of, if there's any books or, you know, movies or things that helped you to sort of see yourself reflected and to continue on the journey? I think the book, there's probably two books I can mention um, that really had an impact on me. The first is um, Carol Gilligan's book, uh, This Deepening Darkness, which I talk about in my piece. Sort of her whole, whole book is about the, the psychology of patriarchy through, through Western culture, through the history of Western culture. When I, when I read that, um, it sort of, broke open my, my understanding of, of things. And it was from there that I, um, that this whole process of, of, of interrogation really gained steam because she gave me a vocabulary, I guess, mm. which is what a lot of feminism has done for me. Feminist works mm. has, has given me the vocabulary to articulate these experiences. Personally, the book that gave me a lot of, um, encouragement um, was um, London Mabenge's Becoming Him. Mm. Um, and I, I've actually had the pleasure of, of chatting to him a few times. And I think both for me and my partner to have had this story and to have met this person who sort of was on the other side of things, who had, who had quote unquote, finished his, his journey, though the journey is never finished, mm. um, at least gave us an anchoring point for, for ourselves to say, you know, at least he's done it, we can do it too. Um, but for me, again, his whole story with confronting his, his childhood abuse um, was what really gave me the encouragement to, to confront my own history of, of childhood abuse, um, largely emotional abuse, uh, which is what made it very difficult for me to grasp for so long. That, that book became especially important for me when my when me and my partner opened up to my parents and they decided to that they wanted no, nothing more to do with me and kick mm. me out mm. um, and that that complete sense of abandonment that I felt and rejection um, but having that book and having just at least one story um, to to grab onto and that is why I, 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 I like books like Living While Feminist because it, it gets people's stories out. It, it amplifies these voices that you wouldn't otherwise hear. Um, it, it gave me a point where I could say, okay, he's done it. I can do it. Let me confront this mm. and, and see. Um, I'm, I'm sure many people feel this way when you're alone and confronting these things and you don't have any way of making sense of them. It feels like it's just you. Mm. And that you're maybe you're maybe making it up, or there's something wrong with you, and just to have 
these ideas and these stories that, that you can share and, and, and not be alone. Mm-hmm. That has been tremendously helpful for both me and my partner. Um, I don't think we would have made it through a lot of the darker moments if there wasn't something to, to provide a guiding light. Mm. Um, I'm really sorry that you had to go through that with your family, but it does sound like you have used it as a sort of starting point to seek out a different community, um, which I think is really it's, wonderful. It's It's been simultaneously the worst thing and the best thing that I feel has ever happened to me because mm. that 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 final cut mm. that absolutely there's no going back um i feel forced me to really step up and and mm. take responsibility for myself um in, in a sense my, my my family had been excuse me had been holding me back mm. or i should rather say i had been holding myself back on their account um and you know they they acted out of spite but they also acted to my benefit. Mm. Um, and, and yes, it has been something that, I guess, forced me to rise to the occasion. Mm. Well, I think it's a, a form of grief. And I think that even you know, coming to mm. feminism, getting feminist ideas into your head and your heart also comes with a form of grief because it means letting go of what you thought was you know, really big pull quotes, normal, and realizing that the world is, you know, a huge system of power that makes certain people feel able to speak and be and limits other people. So, you know, I think it's very helpful to think of it in the stages of grief, you know, going through anger and then denial and huge bargaining. And, you know, they're saying now there should be another sixth stage of grief, which is anxiety, you know, because that pollution (laughs) still exists, right? It still exists there's yes. still this idea in deep inside you of what you're supposed to be getting in terms of familial love or what your relationship is supposed to look like or what your body is supposed to be like. And so, you know, being gentle with yourself as you go through those stages is very helpful. You know, we're all going to be at different parts of our journey. And I think what's one of the things you spoke about earlier, which is so important, is being able to acknowledge your own guilt and complicity and the places mm-hmm. where you had been polluted and then to see where where you deserve forgiveness and where you're able to forgive so that you don't parade your guilt and, and make everybody see your guilt as a sign, you know, that you've so woke, but rather that you yes. do the work on yourself. <laughs> and, you know, just wanted to ask you a little bit about your work on indecent. What does it mean to be creative and what value does creative practice bring to your life? I am an artist. <laughs> I've realized that that is something that has always been a part of me. Uh, since I was since as early as I can remember, um, but unfortunately, it was stifled for so much of my life. You know, in relation to a lot of the things we've discussed, um, and it's only been really recently again with grappling with my own identity that um, that artistic side, the writer side in me, has begun to express itself. Um, you know, my art and my writing is where I find my voice and can express these ideas best. And my YouTube channel, Indecent, is sort of my, my main point for that at the moment. I think it's great that uh, um, you are opening yourself up to various forms of creative expression. Um, I think when you start to become more comfortable with who you are or where you're forced to reflect on what you're comfortable with and what you're not comfortable with, you 
really do open a door inside you to looking at what you can make with who you are. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people are told that they're not artists or they're not writers. And I don't believe any of that. I mean, this might sound a bit cliched, but I do genuinely believe that everyone is an artist. Um, and part of that is, is recognizing that it, it isn't necessarily art in the traditional sense of painting or something like that. Um, you know, even exercise can be a form of art in, in the sense of you're expressing something of, of yourself and, and your body and, and, and that um, cooking is a form of art. Um, we just need to, to look, um, you know, we need to be, again, to use another cliched word, mindful mm. of, of what we do in our surroundings and use every opportunity we can to, to just find a way to express something of ourselves. Just basically forget about all the labels that say what you should do and do what you feel yeah. able to do. I have three quick questions for the ends. Can you speak of any other particular book that you'd like to mention that has inspired your feminist journey? Again, to go back to James Baldwin, um, Giovanni's Room, his second novel. Perhaps another book recommendation that I can provide especially to those in the audience who enjoy fantasy, is Ursula Le Guin's To Hanu, the fourth in her Earthsea series. Unfortunately, I feel that to really appreciate the power that that book holds, especially as a feminist text, you have had to have read the the preceding three books in the series. But I think the time and effort that takes is well worth the effort. It's a very rewarding book, and the series has been... Um, very influential to me as a writer. Ursula Le Guin takes established fantasy themes and tropes and simultaneously incorporates them but also subverts them in her work. And then do you have any quote or feminist quote that inspires you? Okay, this is a bit of a meme, or it was a bit of a meme um, lately, but um, there was a meme going around of these guys going, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> And I don't, I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. Um, but again, it, it sort of comes across as a bit of resignation, but I, I choose to interpret it more in a classical stoic sense. Yeah. Um, and why I say that, that brings me, um, why I find that inspiring. Um, I think the humor helps it sink in. Um, but, you know, we, we, we're all sort of constantly fighting. You know, there's always something that we're, we're struggling in, some new issue or some new challenge. Or maybe it's just the same old issues and same old challenges, but we often feel in this fight for, you know, recognition, we're banging our heads against the wall and just not making progress. And sometimes it's worthwhile to just step back and say, you know, it is what it is. Some things I can change. Some things maybe I I shouldn't bother changing. Maybe I'm better off putting my energies elsewhere. Um, And again, it's part of that being forgiving of yourself and, and just knowing when uh, when to to rest um, we don't we don't need more martyrs <laughs> and so my last question was going to be advice for other feminists on their journey but I think you've covered that really well with rest I cannot emphasize it enough myself but do you have any other last yeah. bit of advice no just, just <laughs> please take care of yourself yeah um, you know be be forgiving of yourself be accepting of yourself be be loving of yourself um, you know, heaven knows that there are few other people in the world that are going to, to grant you even that much so the least you can do is offer it to yourself um, as we said there's a time and a place to fight 
um, tomorrow's another day. Um, anyone who is, who is telling you otherwise, who's telling you, no, you've got to do it now, you've got to fight now, you've got to keep it up relentlessly, um, is usually trying to get something out of you. Um, but if you're tired, rest. Thank you so much for this interview, Mark. I've really Thank enjoyed you. it. I've, I've really had fun. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>